welcome to this episode of the Royal Studies Podcast, where I'm joined with a wonderful group of historians who are going to talk about royalty on screen. So we have four wonderful people who are joining me today. Um, I am Johanna Strong. I have just finished my PhD, and unusually, uh, I am hosting today instead of Ellie, so that Ellie can be part of the panel. So I guess we'll start with Dr. Ellie Woodacre, who's a reader in Renaissance history at the University of Winchester. Just in case any of you are unfamiliar with Ellie, she is the organizer or co-organizer of the Kings and Queens Conference Series, the founder of the Royal Studies Network, the editor-in-chief of the Royal Studies Journal, is an editor of the Lives of Royal Women series with Routledge, and the Gender and Power in the Pre-Modern World series with ARC ARC Humanities Press. She has recently been focusing on resources and revenues of royal women in pre-modern Europe in an international project. And she also, in what free time she has, has been working on a recently published monograph on the life of Joan of Navarre. So Ellie is our first participant today in our round table. We also have Sarah Betts, who is a PhD candidate at the University of York, who was working on memories of the English Civil Wars with broader interests in the history of monarchy and history on screen and in popular culture. She has published multiple pieces on memory of the Civil Wars and on the early modern and modern British monarchy. She has also published pieces on history on screen, a piece discussing representations of masculinity and kingship in the 21st century dramas Charles II, The Power and the Passion, and Versailles. She has an article in the Royal Studies Journal in 2019 entitled Something as Passionless as Brilliant Administration, Royal Sex and Sexuality in 1970s British Historical Television Drama. And she recently edited the RSJ's first cluster feature on Prince Philip, to which she contributed a piece on Philip on screen. Amongst other projects, she is currently preparing a monograph project about the British monarchy in television serial drama, and is launching a call for papers today for a proposed edited collection to play the Queen, historical royal women on stage and screen. You can also hear more from Sarah on the 21st of February um, because she is part of our digital seminar series and will be speaking on dramatizing the British monarchy on screen and the controversy of quote unquote still living history. So great to have Sarah along with us. We also have Lucy Copeman, who is a historian of 19th and early 20th century Austria. She lives and works in Vienna. Her work mostly focuses on the Meierling incident, on which she has published and lectured in various outlets. The Voltazzi-Vetsera family, Crown Prince Rudolf, and Prasita and Portraiture. Currently, she is very excitingly writing the first English language biography of Baroness Mary Vetsera, and has worked with the Scottish Ballet and Polish National Ballet for their productions of Meierling. Aside from research, she is the proud owner of two cats, Wolfgang Amadeus Katzart and Brunhild. Oh, Brunhilde. Um, I've got to work on my German. <laughs> and we also have Jessica Storzczyk, 
who is a historian of monarchy focusing on the 19th and 20th centuries. Her main research topics include the Canadian monarchy, royal tours, and representations of the monarchy in the press. She also works for the news site Royal Central and has a website that focuses on making history and culture broadly accessible. So if you'd like to check out her website, it is anhistorianabouttown.com. So thank you all for joining me today. I'm very excited to get started talking about royalty on screen. Um, so I guess let's quickly start um, by talking about one of those big issues that I think we all, when we watch historical dramas as historians, kind of get worried about, is that element of how true is it? And so sometimes we watch overlapping shows. Sometimes we watch different shows than everyone else. So each of our contributors today has the different series or different set of series. Um, so all of these questions, hopefully you'll all be able to answer as you would like to. So this first question of what role does creative license play in the series that you watch? Um, how accurate they are and why do you think creative license is taken. So I'll open the floor for whoever would like to start that one. I guess I'll I'll jump in on this one. Um, yeah, this is the perennial issue of of kind of accuracy versus artistic license. And obviously, you know, with our students at Winchester, we have a course called History in the Public Sphere, and we talk a lot about kind of you know history in the public venues, museums, films, etc. And obviously, students are always really quick to point out inaccuracies, and and it is something that really irks us as historians. Um, but one of the things that I try and work with, with my own students to kind of get them to shift their lens a bit between not, it's really easy to point out the inaccuracies, but the issue is why are they there? Because obviously every series that's created, every novel that's written, et cetera, that novelist, that producer, that actor, director, et cetera, they're making a series of choices, right? What are they going to include? What are they going to take out? Why? How are they going to represent a particular figure on screen? How are they going to mold their character? What's the kind of plot line? How are they going to judge it up kind of thing? And so it's asking kind of not just pointing out what's wrong, but asking why did they do that? Why did they take this bit of their life out? Why did they change that character? Why did they change that character's sexuality, for example? Why did they omit someone or amalgamate a couple of different historical persons <laughs> into one, which happens you know, frequently? In fact, that was something I was just talking about with a colleague about the new Marie Antoinette. We were talking about different you know, Marie Antoinette uh, versions, if you like, and kind of what has happened to the subsidiary members of the family. And so how some of the, you know, the, the younger sons, if you like, have been kind of amalgamated and, and the, the different amalgamations and different Marie Antoinette's, if you like. So it's asking, why do they do that? Why do they make those choices? What does that say? If they've put more emphasis here or omitted this bit of their life, how does that affect the way that you engage with the historical past, engage with the life of this particular individual, etc.? So it's about unpicking that. What does that mean? What's the impact of those choices? Why are those choices made? What's going on there? Um, and I think that helps us kind of engage with history on screen in a different kind of way rather than just saying, oh, well, they never would have worn that or that didn't happen then. You know, that's you know, <laughs> these are these are, you know, fictional creations ultimately based on historical events. The issue is obviously when it is horrifically wrong and people think that it's right. You know, how many of us have been unpicking with our students, you know, Braveheart or whatever it is, you know, that's a, that's a whole nother issue. But I think, again, it's thinking about how we approach the issue of accuracy as well. That's really important. 
I have to completely agree with you, Ellie. Um, it's something I've been thinking about a lot now that we have this absolute sudden influx of new series about Empress Elizabeth of Austria. I mean, we had the film Corsage, we had the Netflix series The Empress, we had the RTL series Cece, we have another film coming out, Cece und Ich. So there's so much going on. And I'm personally someone who, I'm not so much of a stickler about this. I'm very happy to just sit back and be entertained. <laughs> um, where I do find it problematic is when, like the RTL CC series, they advertise it as this is the true story, this is the absolute truth, and then you go in and watch it, and it's complete, absolute fantasy. I mean, not even just they've taken some liberties, it is just nowhere near the truth, and this is where I find it problematic. But otherwise, I'm very happy that these series you know, introduce someone to a historical figure, and then they usually, I think, go and pick up a book or do a little bit of research online. Um, and then that question of why is this liberty taken? I think Corsage was such an excellent example of this with the whole idea of it being giving Empress Elizabeth retrospectively the freedom that she didn't get to have in the imperial court. I think that's something that some people maybe um, missed out on when they watched it or misunderstood because of course she wouldn't show the middle finger at uh, a dinner at court, for example, or even cut her hair because her hair was an, a very important um, symbol for her, a symbol of her freedom uh, in her own hair, the symbol of her freedom, a symbol of her beauty and um, her independence. But of course, retrospectively, we can see this might have caused, you know, some way for her to be locked up in other ways. So, you know, all of these symbols that the director wanted to give to, to show Elizabeth uh, having freedom, giving her this freedom that she never had in reality, I thought that was a super interesting thing to do and a super interesting way to take historical liberties. So again, like you said, I do think it depends why they're doing it and what exactly they're trying to say with these artistic liberties. I think that's interesting too. I think, um, the sort of the venue and the kind of the reputation of the people producing the material is sometimes quite connected to that. And I was thinking about that a lot because um, one of the inaccuracies that I was thinking about in my work that comes up is the sort of the inclusion of, of fictional characters. Um, so like in Versailles, the Clermonts, for example, are not real people, but they're quite central to the plots. Um, or in, um, in the first series of The Crown, um, the lady Venetia who works for Churchill, who then gets run over in the smog um, and dies and has this sort of big moment for Churchill. She's an invented character. She doesn't really um, exist. And I think that for venues like Netflix or um, particularly for the BBC and um, people who are trying to, or who are marketing themselves as trying to make very serious historical drama, I think this is a venue where they can have a bit of freedom with the plot without compromising their sort of credentials in the same way as if they mutilated an actual historical character so like obviously a large part of venetia to start with she's there to be churchill's sounding board but she's also there to make it more of a personal issue for churchill so it's not really a problem that she doesn't exist and she serves a very specific purpose of being there but they've not sort of taken somebody who, you know, like they didn't decide to just, why don't we just run over Churchill's wife in the smog or something like that? That just didn't happen. Um, and the same with Versailles to an extent, I think. Um, although they played a few more games in terms of presenting themselves as accurate, um, you know, like there's a lot of rumors and there's a lot of um, 
intrigues and things going on at the real Versailles. Um, but they want to be able to play out some of this th- stuff. They want to be able to have a poisoning plot that's actually happening um, and that they can, and they don't want to be constrained by the sort of the historical truth. So they have all these characters who might interact with the real characters, who might be connected to real incidents, but they're able to have this sort of extra background sort of put in, I suppose. And then on a sort of, you know, like it's different from, for example, amalgamating Henry VIII's sisters into something completely different in the Tudors or like pretty much anything of any character in Rain. But it doesn't really matter with the Tudors and particularly with Rain because that's not what they're trying to do. And they're very open about the fact that they're not trying to create an exact picture of history. Um, you know, Rain is basically like, imagine if Mary Queen of Scots was in a high school. Um, like you know and like look at all the clothes and let's have sort of like a little teen drama a week and um and you know and they're not trying to be serious history so yeah they're like oh we can't have them all called marys we're gonna have to give them completely ridiculous names and completely ridiculous backstories (laughs) and um and extra babies and affairs and beheadings and stuff like that and that doesn't really matter because that's not really what they're trying to do um whereas um i think if if you are if you are sort of on the BBC, if you are trying to market it something as like serious historical stuff, there's a limit to how far you can go with the actual characters. So if there's something that you want to explore in a different way, I think you have to bring in somebody fictional. And then I wasn't sure if we were just going to talk about series, but I was thinking as well about um, the film The Favourite. And um, obviously, like the rabbits get a lot of attention. But actually, I think one of the things that's a really glaring historical inaccuracy is the absence of um, Prince George, um, Queen Anne's husband. Um, and I think it's very clear why they just don't mention him. He's just not there. Um, and he is still alive um, for this period of time. Um, and obviously, the Duke of Marlborough does make an appearance, but he's quite a, a side character, really. And I think it's very clear that he's not there because he's not necessary, because the plot is about these three women and their relationship together. I mean, actually, like Prince George is quite involved in one of the um is what is quite involved indirectly in one of the reasons why um the relationship between Anne and Sarah Marlborough breaks down because um Anne feels that Sarah's really unsympathetic when George dies. Um and Sarah sort of feels that Anne's sort of milking it. <laughs> And so, but none of that's in in the film because it's not necessary because the film's not about that aspect of their life. It's about sort of, it's about lesbianism. It's about trying to rescue the idea of, we can talk about historical lesbianism and relationships between women and the way that women exercise power in the early modern court without having to talk about men. And what men do appear are ridiculous side characters. And yeah, so... I think that's really interesting thinking about um, how kind of these moments where we can't believe they're real, but yet they are, and kind of where that creative license, if you don't know the history, that creative license can sometimes be blurred. I remember seeing the Mary Queen of Scots movie. I was going to say recent, but I realized it's a few years ago now. And we walked out and my mom goes, well, surely Rizzio wasn't killed in front of her. It's like, oh no, listen, they made up a lot of stuff, but not that part. Um, and so just that if, if you don't know the history, 
it can be sometimes quite difficult to tell, you know, what what is real and what isn't and how that gets woven. And I think that's something we, in the ones so far that we've looked at, um, obviously there's this theme in, in European dramas that kind of creative creativity is allowable and and serves a purpose. And I'm wondering, Jess, is that something that we see kind of outside of Europe? Is that something that kind of holds true elsewhere? So I I watch a lot of K-dramas. Korean television and Korean culture has blown up in the last decade, I'll say. The VNA has a massive exhibition about it right now. Um, so it's very interesting for me watching historical K-dramas. And I apologize for anyone who speaks Korean. My pronunciation is probably going to butcher them. Um, but they're typically known as seijuks. So they're, it's its own genre. And so as someone who doesn't know the history, because my own research is centered in pretty much the Windsors. So it's interesting watching them because you'll see kind of two groupings in terms of royal themed um, period dramas coming out of Korea. They have ones based on real figures and ones based in the court that the king or queen or crown prince or whomever is made up. Um, so that's interesting. I never know if it's accurate, which is a very odd way to go into watching period dramas like Lucy. I don't care if it's accurate because I want to be entertained. And I think that period dramas bring lots of people into history who never would have researched it anyways. So it's better than nothing. And it gets people asking questions. But in terms of K-dramas, we see in the one uh, in the dramas that have um, fictional figures. It's often to bring in fantasy elements. So there's often time travel, like a modern character goes back um, and is living in the Joseon period, which dates, I believe, to the, the late 14th century to the early 20th, late 19th. Um, so it'll bring that in. Or if it is a historical figure, we see what a lot of people refer to as factual, um, where it's kind of a blend of fictional and fact. And so it's a fun thing in K-dramas. And I, unfortunately, I can't take part in a lot of the discussions, obviously, because I don't speak Korean. So it's limited in what I can see. But in terms of accuracy, I have seen a lot of people discussing as in figures were conflated and three people became one character kind of, or a lot of the time timelines get blurred. And it again is just, you have to make your drama work within, they usually have 70-ish minutes in an episode and they have 16 episodes tends to be. So they have to meet it within their parameters. So do you introduce three people when one person can serve your function? But we do see a lot more, uh, monarchy or monarchical period dramas with K-dramas with um, fictional figures, which I find more entertaining. It's really, you can't really make up a Tudor monarch and Henry the Ninth. Like no one's going to believe that. Every historian is just going to stand up in arms. So it does allow them more creativity and freedom. And I think gets more people interested in studying Korean history and learning more about the Joseon period specifically. They do cover other periods occasionally, but it tends to be the Joseon period. So I think it allows them more creativity. Um, K-dramas have very set tropes and people have very set expectations. So they're working within that. So I think that 
letting go a bit of accuracy just gives the writers more freedom. And as you say, it gives us the freedom as viewers, as an audience to really kind of come to our our own decisions and kind of come to our own, for better or for worse, come to our own ideas about it. And, And we can then kind of sit with it on the screen and then be Googling as we're watching. Yes. Which I know is why why it takes me twice as long as a show actually is to watch anything. (laughs) And I think one of those things that you've brought out, Jess, is this idea of expectations. And I think all of us kind of go into TV shows, movies, expecting there to be the, the good person and the bad person. Because if everyone's good, it's maybe boring. If everyone's bad, maybe not relatable. And so this idea that historical figures often, while they're being conflated, kind of three people in one, or they're kind of for the sake of the audience are being simplified in a way. And so how in the TV shows, movies, et cetera, that you're watching, um, all of you, how are historical figures talked about when they're surrounded by either these black legends or these historical halos. Um, so this idea that if figures are either wholly not good and we can't show them as anything else, or they are wholly good and that's the only way we can show them. Is that something that holds true in the shows and movies that you are watching? Um, or are shows trying kind of break out of these tropes? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think we can see lots of examples of this. And, and I think you're right. There's these expectations of certain historical figures that we expect to be a hero or a villain because of you know how they've been built up over time. I think Catherine de' Medici is a really great example of someone who has this kind of black legend. And it's interesting because she is often represented in this very kind of malevolent way, like in La Reine Margot, she is you know, she, she 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 really looks visually intimidating as well as being, you know, kind of a, a nasty piece of work, if you like. But actually, one thing that's interesting is, is as historians, we've been kind of unpicking her black legend for quite some time now, but it's taken some time for that to kind of come into play in terms of popular culture. And I think one thing that for me, uh, that really made Rain a difficult watch with lots of reasons. But there was one particular reason was the casting of Catherine de' Medici because they picked the Canadian actress, Megan Follows, who is famous for playing Anne of Green Gables, like the sweetest, you know, um, figure ever, right? <laughs> the most kind of angelic, you know, you know, butter wouldn't melt in her mouth kind of thing. And they'd had her play Catherine de' Medici. And so that was just so like, that, that again, to think about expectations of the viewer, you're taking me kind of thinking of her as Anne of Green Gables and making her Catherine de' Medici. But Megan Follis actually does some really interesting things with Catherine de' Medici, sometimes playing her as a, as a kind of villain or type of character and sometimes playing her almost for laughs. So, so doing some really interesting things with that. But again, that just takes my expectation of Catherine de' Medici is, is a villain. And then you've put a really kind of angelic figure playing her. What's going on there in my mind, you know? Um, but more recently, obviously, The Serpent Queen has been a really interesting example of a show that's almost deliberately trying to unpick her Black legend. Although a bit, I think Samantha Morton really gives her a kind of ambivalence because you, by going through her backstory in a series of flashbacks, 
they are trying to kind of help you explain how she became Catherine Medici, you know, the kind of the, the you know, the, the issues that she had to deal with and, and kind of how she, how it made her the person that she was, if you'd like. So it made her a much more sympathetic character, but there was still this ambivalence. You were never quite sure, is she actually, should, should she be sympathetic or not kind of thing, but at least giving that, that ability for you to kind of, you know, again, experience her backstory and, and make your own judgment about her rather than just bringing her on screen as this more kind of villainous figure, which she often is. So I think that's a really good example recently of how kind of things are shifting and changing with some of these kind of, you know, historical figures that have been cast as kind of villains or heroes. And I know that that's one thing I'm not sure, Sarah, if you, if you want to address this or anyone else um, in looking at the crown recently is the closer they get to the modern day the harder it is to have kind of heroes and villains and I think that's part of what makes it maybe polarizing is that it's it's hard to say well yes this is the good person because that changes from scene to scene that changes as things are revealed um and so I guess yeah how how were main characters represented in maybe the crown or in kind of Cece and looking at an empress uh, and then looking at, at K-dramas. Um, so I, I will talk briefly about the crown, although <laughs> probably should save some of this for the uh, um, the digital seminar. Um, but um, yeah, so obviously people have a lot of preconceptions about the crown and about people in the crown. I think one of the um, really interesting people who isn't really talked about and which I'm not really particularly going to talk about in the digital seminar so this won't tread too much on those toes um but um it's the queen mum um so she pretty much is the sort of the modern person who's been given this halo I mean obviously Diana as well but that's kind of a slightly more controversial one but um there's never really been a particularly um nailed performance I don't think of the queen mum and I think in the crown they don't really know what to do with her and I think that's quite interesting because um if you think back um um and you ladies are all uh, yourself accepted sorry Ellie but you guys are all so young and um, you probably don't remember so much but like in the 90s like the queen mum's still like a really prolific part of the royal family and the way that the press talks about the royal family and she's the golden girl really um of the royal family and through all of the Charles and Diana and you know in the last series of the crowd she's barely in it like she comes and has tea with the queen once and like occasionally fusses around the edges but she doesn't really have anything to say or do um and I think that's because they don't quite know what to do with her because obviously you know, she was a woman of her time and um, she had some quite questionable views about things. She's also involved in some fairly controversial stuff behind the scenes. Um, and they're not quite sure sort of how to portray that, I think, in a way that fits with the way that everybody remembers the good old Queen Mum and this lovely old lady who, you know, fought through the war and then lost her husband and then just was this sort of like solid public figure. Um, but actually thinking sort of more broadly about um, black legends and um, that kind of thing. Um, obviously, Elizabeth is the big golden myth. Um, and I was listening to um, Joe actually on a different podcast. I don't know if I'm allowed to name other podcasts on this, so I shan't. But um, 
I was listening to Joe the other way, week on a different podcast talking about Mary and Elizabeth and about Elizabeth R, for example. And I think it's not so much a new thing to want to rethink people's backstories and stuff. And um, I think the portrayal of Mary the first in Elizabeth R is problematic, but I don't think she's evil in the way that she is traditionally portrayed i think she's portrayed as pathetic and she's quite a sympathetic character um and i think that clearly plays in with what they're trying to do with elizabeth r which is to portray um elizabeth and mary and to an extent catherine parr as women wronged um and women wronged by society and this idea that you can't judge her for who she became because look at this awful life that she had at the hands of men and i think it's very much played as i think elizabeth pities her and i think it's a warning case for her but i think it is something that tries to kind of get behind the black legend and say you can't just write her off because she's this sort of like tyrannical queen you have to look at her as a woman in this particular circumstance and I, so i think there is like a history of trying to um, create some backstory and trying to create something a little bit more nuanced about um, historical figures that goes way back into sort of earlier productions. Well, obviously that's a, a sweet spot for me, obviously in a podcast you can't see, but I am championing my Mary the First earrings um, because I had to. <laughs> so I guess those are kind of looking at, at France and the continent and then looking at Britain, those are maybe histories that some of our listeners will be more familiar with. Um, but Lucy or Jess, would you, either of you like to talk either about how they're represented or kind of how their representation maybe does or doesn't fit the research that's going on? Yes, absolutely. This is a huge thing with Empress Elizabeth, actually. I mean, wherever you go here in Vienna, um, CC is everywhere. Her image is plastered on chocolates, on teacups, on just absolutely everything. And, and the CC Museum itself attempts to tackle this CC myth while at the same time actually <laughs> furthering this CC myth because it's not quite caught up with the amazing research that uh, Dr. Martina Winkelhofer has been doing, for example, about Elizabeth. And so every single TV series, well, not every single, but most of the TV series and the films focus on the early parts of Elizabeth's life, on her um, growing up and then meeting Franz Josef, and um, rather than the later parts of her life, when it's uh, the later parts of her life that is explored, it's usually when she is a side character, actually, for example, in a film about Ludwig II of Bavaria, or a film about Meiling and Krampus Rudolph. So this myth that is always being um, uh, spread, whether it's through the museum or whether it's through these different series, is um, Elizabeth as this rebellious, wild, young child who is completely against everything at the Vienna courts, who um, had a completely free childhood without any cares whatsoever. And this is what Martina Winkelhofer's recent work has shown so fantastically is that this is not true. This entire myth has come from 
two letters um, from uh, governesses from the time who were asked by Elizabeth's daughter to write a little bit about Elizabeth's childhood. Um, Emperor Franz Josef was still living at the time. So of course they, you know, they wanted to write something beautiful and, uh, you know, all of this kind of thing. You have to look at these sources a little bit suspiciously, but um, we have to remember that Elizabeth was the granddaughter of the King of Bavaria. There were expectations because of her status, her father, um, you know, that there is this idea that her father was a um, crazy, uh, eccentric aristocrat who um, was, you know, he was only from a sideline of the Witzelsbachs. We have to remember that he was incredibly rich and the entire idea of marrying Elizabeth's mother with uh, Duke Max was to bring in more money to the Witzelsbachs line. So, um, you know, you've got this idea then as well of Elizabeth and Max, the two eccentrics having a lot in common, seeing each other very often, but Max was hardly involved in the upbringing of his children. Um, it was all done by Ludovica, who was the daughter of a king. There were certain expectations. There was a strict protocol that was, of course, not so strict as the, the Spanish ceremony in the Habsburg courts. Um, of course, it was very different. But it's just interesting to see how, you know, you walk into the CC Museum itself and there is a little um, statue on a swing, swinging above your head as if it's in Possenhofen, for example. Um, CC, uh, according to the sources, was actually a very sharp quiet girl who, um, sorry, it's so hard for me to speak English after speaking German all of the time, um, <laughs> who was, you know, raised to the standards of an aristocratic girl of her day, had this education, had these certain expectations and representational duties. You really see her fighting for her freedom, not like the series say, as soon as she moves to the Vienna Corps, but after a series of tragedies in her life, like losing her first child, after finding out that her husband was unfaithful to her and things like this, then she starts to make a stand for her freedom. Um, but these are the points that these films and series don't really reach yet. So they're having to kind of conflated all a lot but you know they make really beautiful films i love the romy schneider films from the 50s they're absolutely adorable <laughs> i can't complain but it is this myth that just keeps um being promulgated and is not quite catching up with the research yet and if i can briefly also touch on on myling um this uh this idea that it was a beautiful love story and that this pair was so tragically in love and couldn't get married and, and that's why they had to die together. It's it's very dangerous, this romanticization of suicide, of a murder-suicide and of a, a man, a 30-year-old man taking advantage of a 17-year-old girl. She was still seen as a girl at the time. So um, that there are problems. Um, as I said, I'm not usually so much of a stickler about historical accuracy and feel free to promulgate this Smith as CC as a wild child. I'm very happy to be entertained by that. But there are points where I do think as historians, we have to say, no, this is actually quite dangerous what you're doing here, as is the case with myeling, unfortunately. Yeah, and I, I think there is there's always that blur of what responsibility do we as historians have? Um, but then also we have that moment where you know, when things come out and we either agree or disagree, it's such a great moment for us professionally to go, I'm relevant again, listen to the things that I have to say. <laughs> what are your thoughts, Jess? Uh, so my comparison is for my entire life, I've always been fascinated by Mary, Queen of Scots. And much like Joe's research on Mary the First, Mary Stuart is often thrown aside for her English cousin. And she's just portrayed as that pathetic, emotional, 
queen who just screwed everything up but i'm always like no so it's really interesting watching k-dramas then because i kind of get to sit back and i'm not affected by any of these legends i don't know anything about them i do start googling immediately as soon as i start watching shows so i can familiarize myself but i'm not affected by it which is a really interesting way to watch a period drama as an historian because it it's very freeing it's i recommend it to anyone watch some period dramas where you have no knowledge of what's going on it's a lot more entertaining uh, i'm gonna put that out there but it's interesting the history often takes a back seat to there's usually a romance theme sometimes court intrigue but it's not kind of the backbone in the same way that we see it with western period dramas in the same way so I, someone from Korea could have a very different opinion, but I think because we have so many K-dramas that are set with um, fictional royals of varying degrees, I think they seem to be less concerned with accuracy. Like you're setting it within a period, but they don't have to, they're not worrying about sharing or working on the myth of a particular figure. So that's my thought as someone, as a Canadian who watches them. Yeah, and it, it, in a sense, gives that sense that if it's a fictional character, everything is fictional. And so it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's true or not, because in a sense, none of it is true. And it, you can, I think, build so much more um, building from these fictional characters. And again, Jess is doing half my job here. She's making great segues. <laughs> We've talked kind of about how obviously a Canadian watching K-drama or kind of looking at kind of Canadian American in Britain, looking at Brits in Vienna is obviously we're looking at genres and, and fields, I guess, in a sense on screen that are not necessarily geographically tied to where we are or to our own backgrounds. Um, and so wondering, and for all of you, um, that in the days of Netflix, of Prime Video, of all of these streaming services, is the reach of historical shows further than it has been? And so are we seeing kind of European dramas being shown elsewhere? Are we seeing an increase in K-dramas in the rest of the world? I know you touched on that a little bit, Jess, um, but I think we'd all be interested to hear more on that absolutely uh so when we're looking at k-dramas there's a few bigger services so netflix has a huge library of k-dramas and that's pretty much true ever in the world titles obviously vary due to licensing and whatnot but netflix is pretty strong in their k-drama library they've really worked at building it up i presume it's a lucrative area so they're going to keep pursuing it but there are a ton of shows that I can guarantee would never have been shown in Canada. Like I would never have seen this on CBC or CTV or anything like that. And it introduces a lot more people to it. And another element in K-dramas that I haven't really seen in any Western dramas is the idea of the idol drama, which means that a K-pop idol is acting in it. So oftentimes when you see that, I personally don't know that I could recognize an idol in a drama, but 
if their fans will then go watch the drama because they know they love their idol and whatever K-pop group they're in. So then they're going to go watch this drama. And a lot of them actually do end up in historical dramas. They're not always contemporary, which is kind of what I thought originally. But idol dramas are huge business and very, very popular. So I think it absolutely um, brings them to wider audiences that wouldn't otherwise have um, come to it. And especially K-pop has a huge international audience. So it pulls people in from many threads and it's fascinating to watch. Yeah, no, I was going to, you know, kind of agree with you. I think one of the things has been really exciting in the last few years. I mean, we've been talking a lot about how so many fields, you know, music, videos, et cetera, have been really opened up by people being able to add content. But I think one of the things in terms of historical dramas and film, et cetera, is that the streaming revolution has really broken the stranglehold of Hollywood on historical dramas. And that means that this internationalization is, is becoming a huge thing. I mean, Magnificent Century, the Turkish soap opera was huge internationally, right? But 10 years previously, you never would have been able to see it because again, a lot of you know mainstream television channels wouldn't have run a series that had to be with subtitles. But now they've realized that actually people, there's a huge appetite for international drama. People are very happy to watch things with subtitles you know, and, and so this this proliferation of, of being able to watch, you know, Bollywood films or Nollywood film. I mean, this is a fantastic film, you know, out of, you know, Nollywood Nigerian kind of cinema about um, Amina, um, an, an African queen. Fascinating stuff. Again, you know, it's, it's, it's meaning that we're getting a huge amount of circulation of things that we wouldn't have done before. And that really is interesting because in a way it kind of goes hand in hand with something that we're seeing in the field of queenship and royal studies, which is more interest in trying to make it totally global. So that's a really interesting thing. Normally there is a disconnect between what's happening in the field and what's happening in popular culture. But here there is this really nice confluence of we're interested in more kind of global queens and queenship. And actually there is the ability to at least engage with popular culture on queens in different, how different cultures are representing their own royal families, their own royal history, et cetera. So I think that's, that's a really, really exciting development personally. I think what's really interesting is how then um, Netflix, for example, tried to advertise that to, um, so for example, the Empress to British audiences to, to build the appetite was, this is uh, the German world's version of the crown and Elizabeth is their version of Princess Diana, for example, which is a comparison I'm personally uncomfortable with for a variety of reasons, like let both women exist in their own right, for example, um, but that's for an entire other podcast. <laughs> but yeah, just to see, uh, you know, how it was advertised to make it exciting and, and intriguing for um, for an audience. And it definitely worked. I don't know how many Facebook messages I got from friends back home in the UK, like, oh, have you seen this new Netflix series that's coming out about Empress Elizabeth? Because Tatler wrote some kind of, this is uh, the new version of the crown kind of thing, which is then also questionable in terms of the level of, um, I can't speak about accuracy because my knowledge of my own royal family is absolutely terrible. But for example, the, the costumes and, and this kind of thing. Um, so it, it is interesting how it how it works though with the advertising. Um, and even though I did just uh, um, talk a little bit badly about the Empress, I do want to add a side note that I absolutely love this series despite any kind of historical accuracies. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, so, um, so firstly, I think obviously we get a lot more of an international mix. And there's clearly stuff that we just wouldn't have got in the past. Um, but when I, because I've done a lot of work on on the dramas in the, sort of the 70s, 
um, and particularly BBC dramas, but not just BBC dramas. But um, but the British dramas do get ex- do get exported. I mean, obviously, there's things to be said, and that's one of the reasons why the British royal family are so much more globally known um, because they're all in English language stuff and things like that. But I was really interested in which things were did well internationally and which things they didn't even really bother to send internationally. Um, and so like one of the things that, so there's this series in 1969 called um, The First Churchills, which is one of the first like color series on the BBC. Um, and it it's about uh, John and Sarah Churchill and it covers um, their sort of lives at court from Charles II down to the death of Queen Anne. Um, and so it, it has a lot of like royal drama in it. And that's one of the first things that they export to Masterpiece in the USA. Um, so that and the Foresight Saga are the, the first things that um, that Masterpiece show to an American audience. And they're both really big hits, especially the Foresight Saga. And the Foresight Saga has a lot of the same production company and a lot of the same big name actors Um so Susan Hampshire, who is um, Sarah Churchill, was Fleur Forsyte in the Forsyte Saga. And Margaret Tizak, who was um, Winifred Darty in the Forsyte Saga, is then Queen Anne. So there's a lot of like crossover stuff and the Americans love it and they really enjoy it. Although the first Churchill's doesn't do amazingly in comparison to the Forsyte Saga. But then the following year, they bring in, they bring over um, the six wives of Henry VIII and that does really well in America. Um, and then Elizabeth R, um, which is partly off the back of that. And that also does really well. But then the BBC are just like, well, we've done Henry VIII, we've done Elizabeth I, and they've both been really successful. And they make a drama called The Shadow of the Tower about Henry VII, which is great. Um, and like James Maxwell is just exactly my picture of Henry VII. He's just brilliant. Um, but I don't think the Americans wanted it. So that never goes internationally until much later when the, when they eventually bring it out on DVD. But then some of the other ones um, that do well, there's a one about Edward VII, um, which does very well. It gets renamed Edward the King um, for the American audience because they're just like, they're not going to know who Edward VII is. Um, so, um, and um, Edward and Mrs. Simpson about Edward VIII and the abdication crisis, that sells phenomenally well globally um but especially in english language countries like australia south africa canada usa they all buy loads of stuff for that um so that does really well but there's this um series called the devil's crown about henry ii and eleanor of actane and their children and that goes from basically just before henry ii marries eleanor of aquitaine until the death of well basically until the coronation of Henry the Third, um, and that, as far as I can see, does quite well at the time. But they never bring it out on DVD, and it doesn't seem to have the same sort of international audience. But they do sell it to France, which I find really interesting. And obviously, a lot of it's set in France. It's a lot of characters from French history, so there's a bit of a crossover there. But there's also um, a very famous series of historical novels. Um, by Maurice Drouin called Les Rois, Les Rois Maudits, um, which were very popular internationally and were published in English as well. And in the early 70s, the French made that into a sort of um, a TV series, which did quite well. 
and was then shown in French with English subtitles in um, 1974 in Britain. And it did so well that they then showed it again in 1975. And then Devil's Crown's made in 1978. So I think they sort of thought, firstly, I think they were partly inspired to do it because this French one had done quite well. And secondly, I think they sort of thought they'd have a niche audience in the French to sort of sell this as a sort of prequel. Um, because Le Roi Mordi's um, more sort of Hundred Years' War era. Um, so, um, yeah, so I think they thought they'd have this sort of market. I'm fairly sure the French buy it, but they don't subtitle it. I think they dub it because that's more of a thing in French TV. Um, but as far as I'm aware, it doesn't really ever go anywhere else. And for some reason, the BBC just, I don't know, they clearly didn't like it for some reason and they sort of kept it locked away in a vault since then. So, um, so. There's clearly an international thing going on before that, but obviously Netflix completely revolutionizes it. But I think we have to be careful to an extent in that I think Netflix makes things very global, but I think some of the other streaming services, obviously, um, the more streaming services you have to have to watch these things, I think it can become more limiting. And personally, like I've held out on getting stars. So I've just waited for things like The Spanish Princess and uh, I haven't seen Becoming Elizabeth and things until they're out on like DVD or something. Cause I'm just like, I just don't want another streaming service. Like I've got enough. So yeah. So I don't know. Um, but I mean, obviously there's something to be said about, um, sort of identity. Like I think the, um, the national party in Turkey are quite involved in helping to fund, um, Magnificent Century. So I think there are some political implications for that and i was watching um because they've just started showing here on like drama or something on freeview they've just started showing um it's called i think it's called the atlantic crossing which is like a norwegian one um about the second world war about crown princess martha who's someone who i've always been very interested in but um and it, it's really good and there's clearly a bit of an eye on an international audience and um, the lady who's crown princess martha is the um the star of i don't know if any of you are into like your uh, nordic noir or anything but she's in the bridge she's the main woman in the bridge um and um and so there's a bit of an eye on an international audience but it's it's clearly Amer it's norwegian state television who've made it and i'm gonna say the king of sweden is not coming out too well um i mean <laughs> they're really leaning into the nazi sympathizing so <laughs> um, yeah, as someone who, probably unusually for a kid, someone who grew up watching Masterpiece and all of the British classics, that was the highlight of the week was like 7 p.m. on TVO when they played like the documentaries or when they do Masterpiece and be like, Mom, Dad, you need to tape it so that I can watch it. It still is for me, uh, still in Canada here, uh, Masterpiece. Well, currently, we're getting all creatures great and small, but it... Uh, we uh masterpiece is still a big thing and atlantic crossing was pretty big last year and i got a lot of messages um from people asking about creme princess martha because no one here in canada knows who she is uh no one really knows who any of the european royals are here so i think it does speak to masterpiece is the their reach is incredible and what they can promote and what they can do for shows and what they can do for history is incredible um and yeah, as a Canadian, getting the CBC 
we had a lot of period dramas and I'm sure the world got Anne of Green Gables. Amazing. Still watch the 1980s films. Still top of the line, but we get both the CBC and the masterpiece. And it's interesting, the international shows that we're now getting that I don't think we would have gotten like when Joe and I were kids, for example, it's really incredible to see how much that's changed. It's wonderful how kind of simultaneously big and small this world of, of screens makes it. Um, so I think we've, we've had a really good chat. Um, is there anything that anyone is dying to say that we haven't said yet? <laughs> I think I've covered most things. So I just want to plug for one particular K-drama that I love. And I think if anyone is a historian, they will love. It's called Rookie Historian Gu Hae-ryang. And it's about a female historian. So in the Korean court, there are official historians, or it's usually translated historiographer, and they play a very important role at court. This is true. And it's it's fictional, but she is, it's when they first start allowing female historians and she's this young female historian and she interacts with people from Europe and hears about Versailles and it's a fantastic drama. So would a hundred percent recommend Rookie Historian because you'll probably enjoy it as a historian. I have to totally second that. I, I loved that. And also Empress Key. Absolutely. I was absolutely obsessed with Empress Key. And I literally just, and there were so many episodes, so many, but that's the great thing about K-drama, right? There's so many episodes you can really get into it. So yeah, I would definitely second that one. Um, also in terms of the things that I've watched recently, um, the Marie Antoinette, I literally just finished watching. So that's kind of on, on my brain. And actually I thought that was an interesting one. There's been so many Marie Antoinette's, um, but I thought it was kind of an interesting interpretation. It was, she was neither a villain, nor was she, you know, uh, excused, if you like, or a victim, it said she was a bit of both. And she, you know, I, I thought I thought it was a, a fairly nuanced portrayal, actually, it wasn't bad. And I yeah, I mean, I'm still kind of chewing over it. But um, but no, I, I, I actually quite enjoyed that. Um, yeah, so that, that that in terms of and the Empress, I would definitely say I, I'm with you, Lucy, I totally enjoyed the Empress, obviously, not being an expert on CC, I was I could be a little bit, you know, removed from it. But um, it was, uh, yeah, it was really engaging, really engaging. Yes, it was great. I just have to say the guy playing Franz Josef, I mean, you crush, <laughs> no shame. But just on the topic of Marie Antoinette, there was something um, I, I don't want to take up too much time, but I was thinking about before the podcast was the Sofia Coppola film. And for me, this was very much uh, not so much a this is a strict biography of Marie Antoinette, but rather for me, like a coming of age film for all girls, for all women, I think so many of us could relate to, to things that she was going through, despite the fact that she was the Queen of France, you know, this moment where she is lying on her bed after Axel von Fersen is left, and she's kind of daydreaming about him. I mean, I can remember times when I was a teenager, or even now, I'm not embarrassed to say it, where, you know, I've had a crush, and I've lay on my bed and thought about this guy for hours, for example. I just thought that this was such a moving film in this respect, and the way it humanized a queen who is very often not seen as a human being with real emotions and and thoughts and feelings so yeah I just wanted to uh, recommend that film to anyone who's not seen it it's I, I really think it's a piece of art I know my list of things to watch is already so long and I think it's gotten longer every time anyone has said anything today which is a good problem <laughs> I just want to say thank you to Ellie, Lucy, Sarah, and Jess for joining me. This has been 
really interesting. And I hope that everyone listening has enjoyed our conversation as well. So thank you all very much to you for your time and knowledge and enthusiasm. And we'll look forward to hearing people's thoughts on the episode and what you're watching. And thank you again for listening to the Royal Studies Podcast. Thanks, Joe.